Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we have yet another very exciting episode for you all today. The Women's Euros is well underway, and what a fascinating showcase it's been so far. One of the most impressive teams in the tournament so far has been England, who are already through to the quarterfinals following an 8-0 decimation of Norway at the Amex Stadium in Brighton on the South Coast. Among the goals was the Arsenal star Beth Mead, who's had a truly excellent calendar year from an individual perspective. From being left out of the Lionesses squad last year, Mead is now in the form of her life. One man who has offered a massive helping hand to the versatile winger is Arsenal boss Jonas Eideval. After a clunky 2021 campaign, the Gunners replaced Joe Montemurro at the helm with Eideval, who had seen great success in his native Sweden, lifting three Damelsvenskan titles with FC Rosengard as well as two Swedish Cups before making the jump to the Women's Super League. In his debut season in English football with Arsenal, Eideval closed the gap to league champions Chelsea from nine points to just one. I'm absolutely delighted to announce that Jonas has very kindly joined us today, taking time out of his busy schedule working as a pundit for the Women's Euros. Jonas, firstly, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Um, you're working as a, a pundit at the moment with the BBC for the Euros. What's that been like and just how much preparation are you doing before each game? Uh, it, it, I found it's been really interesting working as a pundit. Uh, I've been doing both that and I've been doing expert commentating during the games for Swedish TV. But just like when you're coaching, it requires a lot of preparation, but of course a little bit different. Because here now you're looking for things that you want to explain and to show to the audience. And, and that's not necessarily things that will make the team play better. That's more a description of why things are happening. Your players, when you're coaching, they wouldn't be so happy with you as a coach if you would go into halftime and you're saying, okay, this is why these things are happening. And they would be, yeah, but what's the solution? So, yeah. it, and, and that's the coach's choice. So I don't have to show all the solutions um, on TV, but, but that's the different mindset that you have as a pundit compared to a coach. And you must be proud watching some of your Arsenal players like Beth Mead, for example. She scored a hat-trick against Norway recently. And Do you, do you think she can play more of a central role for you at Arsenal? Or are you happy with her, or her output from the wings? I'm very happy with her output from the wings. <clears throat> I think she's a, she's a good number nine as well. She, she has qualities to, to play there. But, but I think she's playing at her best right now as a wing. And why? Because I think when she gets a lot of time, on the ball, she can do a lot with the ball because she has an excellent crossing foot. So she can put in the early crosses behind the defending line. That means you have to come close to her and try to cut, shut down the crosses. But then she's an excellent 1v1 play. And I think that combination is, uh, is very good for her. Amazing. Jonas, you you know, you know had great success in the Damelsvenskan. And then, of course, you moved to Arsenal, the Women's Super League. From a tactical perspective, what are the main differences you found when you made that jump to English football? In Sweden, it's 50% of the games will be played on artificial grass. And I think that's, that's different because when you play on artificial grass, it's easier to keep the ball. It's harder to get in and press the opponents. So that might lead to a little bit different pressing strategies and a little bit different strategies in, in possession. In WSL, it's all artificial grass. Makes the game a little bit more transitional. So that's the difference. And 
when you were, I mean, you, you walked the men's game too. I think you were with um, Helsingborg under Hen- Henrik Larsson, Swedish legend, as as a um, as his assistant manager. I read an article from The Athletic and it was talking about your role under Larsson saying you were mainly in charge of things like opposition analysis and, and your own team analysis. But now that you're managing the side, how do your, you know, how does your responsibilities change in the in the sense of are you taking a hands-on approach when it comes to the team analysis? Are you happy to allow your own analysts to kind of take control and feed you the information? When you work within a large coaching team, I think you need to trust the, the staff that you're working with. And uh, I think you need to, to give them the responsibility to deliver within these areas. The um, objective for me as a head coach is to fit that, all that information together and making sure that I have the correct information at the correct time to take a decision. Does that mean that I don't look at the opposition before? Of course I do that still, but it's more important for me to get the workflow and the processes in, in place so I have an analyst team that, that works with that so they can present the information to me the way I want it. And then, of course, I will also look with one eye onto that so I can ask them the relevant questions and we can have a really good discussion about it. Um, so that will hopefully make the decision-making process better. And how much information are you looking for from your analysts? Because obviously, I mean, I'm sure you, have, you, I mean, you do have a lot of games taken fast and you, I suppose for yourself, you can only be fed a certain amount of information, but then you have to give that on to the players. But for just yourself, how much are you looking for? Are you looking for everything? Are you looking for them to chop, you know, just the most important bits? Does it depend on what games you're playing, whether it's a better opposition like Chelsea or a Champions League game or a, a lesser opposition, respectively? Yeah, for, for myself individually, it's, of course, of importance if, if we play against a team or against a team that consists of players that I have a lot of knowledge about. Because those small details is not something that you would necessarily share with all the players, but it's really good to know yourself as a coach in order to try and read the game, in order to find small details to change during the game, in order to change the momentum. But if we look at it from a larger perspective, you, you will have some things that you will base your offensive positioning, for example. And that's the information that you need to know. And you need to know if the opponents are changing, why are they doing that? Is that because of player availability? Is that because they're playing home away? Is that because they are playing against a different system and so on? So you understand their decision-making process. So then in your head, you can try and create what you think will be the perfect match for your team in offense. Same thing goes for defense, same things go for the transitions, same for the set pieces. Again, sometimes that's not so much information. Um, and and that, that would mean that it you don't need to spend that long time on it. And I think that's the essence in when you are preparing for, for football games. There will be so much information available, but in a hectic game schedule, you might only get 15 minutes to present it to your players. Maybe we only get to work on two of the things on the pitch. So it's more about prioritizing and making sure that you have a game model 
that doesn't need too much information put into it, into every game, for it to function properly. When you're feeding the information through to your players, do you have pre-match meetings where you kind of just throw it on top of all of them? Or do you, you know, would, would some players be more open or you know willing to understand the information more than others do you pick and choose which players get more information than the others it's a good question uh, we would definitely do it the traditional way with the, the team meetings where we present because i think it's important because it's a team sport that there is a baseline that everybody needs to know how we will play as a team and why we will play that way uh, against the opponent that's the baseline there could be players before that team meeting that I would involve more and, and to discuss some tactical details with because a lot of times in, in football, it's all about believe and it's also about the, the players that will need to perform those duties, how they would feel that they would be more successful in doing it. So, so I really believe in, in involving players there. And then you will, of course, have all these things that will be position-specific to the players. And there, I think you have to use the, the German word, fingerspitzgefühl. Uh, you really have to feel which players that will be better off you speaking about the details and which players that would just overthink the situations because you have filled their head with a lot of information that doesn't give make them better. Uh, I like so. it. That's a great word. I'll never be able to pronounce that word, but I, I like it. Um, <laughs> Are there certain players that, I mean, I'm not specifically speaking about Arsenal here, but are there certain players that kind of come to you with little bits of, when they're, obviously they're out on the pitch playing, will they come to you and say, look, we're struggling here, or would you be even open to the idea if they did? Do you do you like that? I'm sure as a manager, it's, it's quite a, a good thing to hear from your players. They're listening, they're tuned in. I much rather cry before the game than I do after. <laughs> so I love that. Mm -hmm. Practice, it's about getting better and as a team to get clarity in what we are doing. And if we can occur on problems, if we can solve things before the game, much better. Mm -hmm. When you're on the training pitch, of course, as you said, you have maybe 15 minutes of, of tactical information to speak or, or, or being able to to feed the tactical information through to your players but when you're on the the training pitch how much work do you put into the tactical side or is it more fitness is it more you know training the, the technical attributes of your players from my perspective 90 percent it, it's tactical and the game model and decision making i mean we will work on a weekly and monthly basis on our periodization to see how do we hit the physical targets. So we're not only sustaining, but trying to be a little bit better with, with, um, with, with our physical abilities. Technique for me, a lot of times, is to just create exercises that will put uh, the right environment for, for the players to, to um, develop the technique. And that will mean that, for me, they need to try their hardest and best. And they should be successful around seven or eight times out of ten. If you, mm -hmm. if you do that, I think you're doing what researchers would say is deliberate practice. Um, but, but 
there you need to find exercises, drills in, in order to do so. Then you want to create games. And this is the hardest part in football to say that the most realistic game we would play would be 11 v 11. Because it would be exactly the same situations that occur that would happen in a game. Problem is, how many times will they occur? So you would have an excellent situation, for example, about us winning the ball and wanting to play the ball forward when we win the ball. But we play 11 v 11 and it happens five times during 12 minutes. And that's too few repetitions in order to get better at it. Then we might as well just go in and watch video and saying, this is what we need to do. But football is doing, football is doing practical actions. So then you need to understand that concept and bringing it back into a format where you would practice winning the ball, playing the ball forward in a game situation, maybe 30 times during those 12 minutes. You have to understand that then you have to take away something from the 11 v 11. You have to make the pitch smaller. You have to make the players fewer. You have to add different constraints to it. You have to try and keep as much as possible from the 11 v 11. But getting that moment more often. Because when you do that, then you will get better. I think that's the challenge all the time. That's where I spend a lot of time in trying to preparing practices so we practice that in game-like conditions well that you know that's a good segue into the question i was going to ask you next was about constraints when you're when you're training it was such a big thing under um well thomas tuchel he was at chelsea of course and when he was at psg i remember um it became such a big thing because he was cutting the corners off the pitches and it was such a fascinating um sight to see and then he went to chelsea and you see how he he wanted the the groundsmen on the training pitches to to do the exact same thing. So you look at an aerial shot at Chelsea training ground that has the corners cut off the pitches. How important are constraints to the development of your players and, and what kind of benefits do they offer you? I think you can obviously have many different constraints. And I think what I try to think about when I put in an, into a constraint is, is it realistic to, to put that constraint in? So, for example you could come up with the most difficult idea in, in how to build an attack. You could say that you are never allowed to have as many touches on the ball as the player before you had, for example. That would make it really hard all the time because, oh, the other player had two touches, then I need to do one or three touches on the ball. So that would be a mental uh, overload. But would you solve an actual problem on the football pitch? I don't think you would. So you would create something that the players would really struggle with. Over time, they would be really good in that thinking process to, to base their decision on how many touches the, the player before them had. Will it make them better football players 11 v 11? No. And that's where you need to find if a constraint is good or not. So for example, the example you had with Tuchel, why do you put that constraint in? That's because you want the player's decision-making in those situations to, to find more central, more diagonal passes. And of course, then if you're doing that, he will see how that affects the 11 v 11 performance. And for me, that's the number one thing all the time when I'm trying to put in constraints. Don't do it just for the sake of it to make it more difficult for the players to perform. Do it 
because you want de their decision making to be influenced by that. One thing I've been doing, and, and the players hard with that, but it's because it fits our game model is to just play one touch football. And of course, that means it's not going to be perfect decision making in all situations because sometimes it is much better to take two touches on the ball. But when you are playing one touch football, you are always forced to think one step ahead before you get the ball. The players around you are always forced to get really early into their positioning in order to provide options and alternatives. You always need, when you play the ball forward, to have another player coming in support so you can play the ball back. That just goes into so many important aspects of the way that I want to play. So I would do that a lot as a constraint, just playing one-touch football. When you're when you're playing one touch football, I'd imagine you have to keep the pitch quite close knit together. Is it quite a small? Is it like maybe five a side, or do you go full eleven by eleven one touch? You can do both. In the end, it's it's the player skill. I mean, you could find many situations from eleven v eleven build ups against high pressure, where you would have six or seven passes on one touch and a finish. Contest team, we would see Inter uh, when he was playing there. Lots of situations when they were playing out from the back where he would use a lot of one-touch passes. You spoke there about build-up play, which is obviously such a, a vital aspect of your side and in the modern game. I think even at grassroots level now, everyone wants to play out from the back. How important is it to have different, or I think a better question would be to ask, how many variations of playing out from the back do you have? You know, there's, there's a, there was a famous coach, Ricardo La Volpe. Um, he was a coach in, in Mexico and, and I think South America as well. He had, I think it was 17 or upwards of 17 different variations he trained with his players. But I feel like, again, I'm, I mean, I'm not a professional football manager and I don't claim to be, but I feel like maybe would it, from your point of view, is it better to allow them to play more naturally or do you actually have certain ways that you want to play out like maybe it's game dependent maybe you're playing a team that presses in one way and you say okay we're going to go down the right hand side this time how does it change or is it just very kind of um based on intuition of the players at any given minute i think if i go back one step and zoom out a little bit further i would say one thing that you're fighting for all the time in football is the positioning. In many sports or in life, positioning will be a set thing or it will rotate so it would become even. If you play poker, for example, every round you, you will change your positioning if you are the dealer, if you are under the gun or, and so on. That's, that's because positioning is so important. It's the same thing in football. But in football, you can position perfectly according to the situation every time because it's a dynamic game. So because you can do that, I think it's really important when we start an attack to try and create the optimal uh, positioning. So if we're talking about different variants of building out, I think what my idea is based on is positioning. It's positional play. It's the concepts on how we position 
And of course, that depends on how and what opponents are doing, how they are, uh, how their formation is, but also, of course, the qualities that that they have. For example, on a right hand or left hand side, like you were talking about, I've not counted how many different variants that would be how we could position, but it's only based on very few rules, so it should be very easy to understand why we are adapting, why we would be changing our positions, because it's always based around the same thing. And that gives you control. And, and in football, it's such an invasive game. You know, most, most team sports, you can protect the ball much better than in football. You can use your hands you can run with the ball. It's very difficult to intercept the ball if you, if you don't intercept like a, a pass. In football, you can steal the ball by pressure because it's really tough to defend it with your feet. It's open all the time, which makes the need for control and need for positioning much greater in football as a team sport compared to others. And when you're in possession and you're, you know, obviously trying to build your way through the thorns of the pitch and maybe the opposition are in a in a low block. Do you attack uh, a certain in a certain area of the pitch to sue how you can counter press, if that makes sense? So if, say, one team is maybe slightly worse down the left side of transition, and would you maybe attack down that side so you can contain their counter-attack by counter-pressing when you lose the ball? I would, in theory. But then I still think football is such a dynamic game, so you would have a really hard time attacking if you would just attack a specific area all the time. I still think when, when we're talking about attacking in football that there is a really good idea using the whole pitch attacking and everyone wants to get into the golden zone and to score there. But you don't want to get in there before it's needed. That means that... If you place too many players there too early, the opponents would do the same thing and then it will make it really, really hard to score. In terms of transition, you saw how transition-based English football can kind of be when you made the jump from Sweden to England. I think Paolo Fonseca said the same when he moved from Shakhtar Donetsk to, to Italy. He said that he was very surprised how transition-focused Italian football was. Did it change your kind of approach and training to train a transitions a lot more than you maybe would have in Sweden? No, but that's because I think transitions is very important in football. So I will always train transitions a lot during, because transition is also the moments where you have the least amount of time and space to make your decisions on. So build up, for example, for me, that can be done in team meetings. Because if you have a lot of time to take your positions, then we can speak about it on the tactic board and say, okay, we're going to change for this game here. Now we're going to position with a right fullback in, in this situation between these two players, for example. And maybe we only need to practice that five minutes. But saying that we will play against FC Barcelona, for example, they're an excellent counter-pressing team. And when we win the ball, we want on the first touch, when you intercept the ball, on your first touch, we want you to pass the ball forward diagonal to this player here. 
That's very easy to say on the team meeting. It's very easy to show on the video as well to see it's possible to play the ball to this player here. It's very hard to do it practical. And because it's very hard to do it practical, you need to practice it over, over, over again. So the transitional moments and being successful with them, it's not hard on a theoretical basis, but really hard on a practical basis. So that's why a lot of practice time has to be devoted to them. Jonas, what kind of mental and tactical character characteristics do you look for when you're you know, recruiting players in the summer or in January? Is it, you know, do you have a set idea of what player you want in a position that maybe your club doesn't have, or do you kind of work within the kind of the personnel available to you? But so many different factors when, when you're looking at players, but of course. It starts with a person. You want players that are passionate football players, that wants to go every day and do their absolute best to become the best version of themselves and to make the team as good as possible. And if you can see it somewhere, you would see it in their eyes. That burning desire, if they're on the pitch, off the pitch. So that would be my first where I look for. Um, that doesn't matter if you're a goalkeeper or forward. You, you want players that, that have that commitment and passion. Then, I think you always need to see what would improve the team. That, that's the question you have to ask yourself all the time. And a team is a very dynamic organism. It will change through the results, through the experiences through how the different members of that team develop. So, again, that's where I think you go into a little bit of the fingerspitzker feel in knowing what do we need to add in order to make also everything else better. So when you took over Arsenal last summer, and they had done, they, they, they had done reasonably well with Joe Montemoro in the 2021 season, obviously they, they did very successfully, they were very successful under him. Um, especially in 2019, they won the Women's Super League. But what did you feel had to change when you went in first? Was it when you watched the games? Was it a, a, you know a strategic thing in terms of how they play on the pitch? Uh, you know, was it personnel recruitment? Obviously, there was a lot of recruitment last summer too. I think the big thing for me when I was watching the the team play was that first and foremost they were a very very good team, but. They, they lacked some things. Um, when, when teams were going up and pressing them high, I thought the team was getting into difficulties um, from, from the structure that they were playing with, which meant that they couldn't impose their playing style like they wanted. And I think that affected the self-confidence of the team as well. So that aspect was important. I think you could see that there was room for improvement in how the team defended um, in basically both when you were at your own half and, and when you were defending your own goal, but also the way that you organized good press and forced opposition to mistakes and therefore forced more turnovers and more attractive uh, ball wins for, for your team. And then there was a mental aspect, but it goes a little bit hand in hand with these two 
things with playing out from the back against high pressure and applying pressure yourself. It was against when you play against the top teams that the feeling you had when you saw was that the team was was underperforming. So those were the three things that we meet we or I needed to come in and work with the group and 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 team up. So and I always think that's a good process when you're when you come in and work is to identify where can I have most impact. And that will be different with with different teams. But the process into finding what areas you want to come in to work with, it's going to be the same. And that's by seeing, listening, and of course, basing it on your own experience. You spoke there previously about wanting leaders in your team. And, you know, last season, unfortunately, you lost the league on the final day. And obviously, it looked at one stage within Manchester United were ahead against Chelsea that you were going to going to take the league title home but at the end of the match I'm sure the mood was quite quite dull and, and or maybe it wasn't I'm not sure but can you talk to us about the mood in the dressing room and, and how how important it is to have those leaders in the dressing room at such moments when the team are maybe after being kicked down a bit of course from, from losing the league on the final day yeah I think it's different sometimes when you have um, depending on what's happening after. So I'll take this example. You, um, you would fail to, to reach an objective, for example, to win the league, but you have to play an FA Cup final three days later. Of course, then we really need to, early on, trying to think next action, and that would probably be recovery in order to be fresh to play the FA Cup final. We would need to be really exact into our match analysis and really just take out the points from that league game that we can use into the FA Cup final. And that has to start directly because the time will be so short so we will need to to use that for everything. If you play the league game and you don't play any more games, then it can take longer time. I think, and this is a personal opinion of mine, but the, the times that I have grown the most has been in times of difficulties. And it has not been in times of difficulties when someone else has given me the solution. It has been myself that has been in a situation and I have come up with what I need to do in order for it to become better. And I think when you, for example, sitting in a dressing room or you go home after the game, you will start to think and you would be one point between us and winning the league title. We won the last eight games in the league. We had seven clean sheets in those eight games. What did we do before that that didn't allow us to win the league? And your mind will start going through. And if it's a good process, you will end up with things that you can do better yourself. And that will mean a lot to you. So you will make that as goal set. You will set up new ambitions, targets. And that process sometimes maybe takes a day, sometimes it takes three days, maybe a week and so on. So I think when you don't need to put a constraint on time for it and to fix it, it's not about feeling good right away. It's about being better. And sometimes if you want to be better, 
you need to feel bad for sometimes because it means so much to you. And, and if you never feel bad in life, if you never want anything that much, as it really would hurt if you don't get it, then it's not that important for you. So I, I don't believe in that, that you need to be really disappointed in the dressing room and then you should have a, have a leader coming in and then everybody will go out and say, oh, now I feel really good because it was such an amazing speech. Now it's about getting better. And only when we get better, then we should be feeling good. The last question I want to ask you, of course, that was such a great, um, a great life lesson there. But uh, I also want to know, at halftime, say your team are losing, maybe, maybe they're not losing, maybe they're draw, maybe it was a poor performance. You go into the dressing room. Are there certain games where, okay, maybe you need to go to the tactics board and you'll maybe change something? Are there games where that goes out the window and, and the players need to kick up the backside? How do you, you know, what's your approach in that kind of environment? And obviously, I don't. I hope I'm not speaking out of tone. I think you can be quite a feisty guy on the sideline as well. Um, I think it's fair to say. So I'm just curious to know how your approach maybe changes on, depending on the performance and depending on how you feel that the players' moods are maybe. There would need to be a lot of things that I would have checked that we had been doing properly before I would stand or start and stand and scream in, in, in the locker room as my, as my first thing. Because I think that if you need to get the structure right um, and, and you need to find out what, why we are not performing the way that we can go or can do. And that's more listening. That, that's more creating a, a safe space in the locker room. And it, it is very much on a time constraint to have these conversations in, in half time. It's not a Hollywood movie where, where I'm coming in and screaming in five minutes, they go out to play. It's much more than about saying, I want you to react faster in this situation here. And that play would be, yeah, but we're losing the ball all the time here. And you sort of would open up and say, okay, but if we do like this, we, we're not necessarily going to lose the ball that often here. But you, for the team, you need to react faster because if you don't react fast here, that means that there are all other 10 players will have to run here. And then we will all be tired when we get the ball and then we will commit the same mistake again. But I think when you're, when you're standing there screaming, it probably will feel really good for yourself. And no one can point a finger to you and saying, oh, you, you didn't tell them. But it's not about that. It's about the team. It's about them to play better. I can be, like you said, much more vocal on the sidelines because I'm not going to be able to have a quiet conversation or a dialogue with a player during the game. Mm -hmm. But I can influence the details for it to making sure that I set the, the tone and expectations and the standards for them. To be vocal, so when something is really good, to really emphasize that so they understand, yes, this is the level. This is what is needed today in order to win. But also the contrary and saying, that's not acceptable. That's a non-negotiable. That's not how we play. You get stops in the game or small opportunities to speak 
more quiet and, and in a more intelligent way with them. I'll take it during the game. Half time will present the best opportunity for it. So I think I've changed a lot as a coach during the year. When I was younger, in my 20s, I would, I would play them motivational movies. Um, <laughs> I would, you, you've seen the movie Braveheart? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. The more we were screaming inside the locker room, the better I felt it, it was. <laughs> not today anymore. Uh, I think it's, it's not difficult to, uh, to, to get people screaming and, and pumping and so I don't think it necessarily makes you play better football. Mm-hmm. Football is, a, is first and foremost a game about decisions. And we need to be on the same page to, to make good collective decisions. And uh, half-time, there will be things where we're seeing things through different lenses and we have different solutions. And that's the important thing as a coach, to bring that together so we go out with a shared mental game model for the, uh, for the second half. Well, Jonas, thank you so much for joining us today. Forces, this has been a, a great chat and our listeners will definitely, definitely have learned a lot. Um, and I just want to say best of luck in, in the new season as well with Arsenal. Maybe you'll, well, hopefully you'll, you'll take the league home this time. We hope. We're going to do our best. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jonas. Thank you. This has been the Total Football Analysis Podcast. What a fantastic interview it was with Jonas Oidevel. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye for now.